A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Just as we say the most important factor in the business of real estate is location, we could also claim that for the learning of scripture, the most important thing is function, function, function. Welcome to episode four of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. When we hear the biblical story, we should remember that what we are hearing is, first and foremost, a story. Its purpose is to teach, and the teaching is communicated through the words themselves. Any attempt on our part to historicize the text is problematic because it impairs our ability to actually hear the story in the way it was intended to be heard, as a story. When we make the biblical narrative secondary to anything, history, geography, civilization, culture, even religion, our chances of hearing it and learning from it are diminished. Because instead of submitting to the scriptural text, we make the text submit to what we already know, or what we think we already know. And doing that hinders our ability to hear. It makes understanding practically impossible. How are we going to actually do what Scripture teaches if we can't understand it? And how are we going to understand it if we're not really hearing what it wants to say? To illustrate the relationship between the words and our understanding of the message, listen to the following passage from Luke chapter 24. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. In verses 44 and 45 of Luke 24, we learn that Jesus, raised from the dead, communicates the understanding of scripture to his apostles by referring to words words which he had spoken to them previously, and words or things which are written in the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. We notice that nothing magical or mystical happens here. It's just the reference to words, the telling and retelling of the story. Earlier in verse 32, after Jesus had met two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says, And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Jesus opened the scriptures to them, or as it says in verse 27, he expounded to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself only after the two disciples had related to Jesus in detail all the things that had happened in Jerusalem in those days. In other words, it is in the telling and retelling of the story that scripture is opened up and that its message is communicated. In addition to hearing the stories as stories, 
Paying close attention to every detail in the narratives helps us understand the message. Everything in the biblical story has a value. Not even the smallest detail is included simply because. And its value is in its function, in how it serves to communicate the message. After all, is not the purpose of hearing scripture to understand the teaching in order to do the things that it commands? When we focus on the words themselves, when we pay attention to the smallest of details in the story, concerns about historicity become less important and ultimately irrelevant. To better understand how this works, let's look at an example. Chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew includes an account of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and the call of four of his disciples. On the surface, not much seems to be happening other than Jesus calling the four, their response, and the beginning of his work of teaching, preaching, and healing. Let's hear verses 18 to 23. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. If the purpose of the gospel were merely to communicate information, the text could have said something like, Jesus began his public ministry, he called some disciples, they responded, and here are their names. Instead, we get some interesting and significant details. The call of the four is arranged in two callings of two brothers. In the first one, Peter is given two names, his Aramaic Hebrew name Simon and his Greek name Peter. And another one with a Greek name Andrew is called his brother. Then we hear that they were casting their nets into the sea for they were fishermen. By giving us both names for one disciple and by connecting him to the other one as a brother and by identifying both of them as fishermen, the author looks ahead to the task to which Jesus will appoint them, specifically to bring the gospel to men from among both Jews and Gentiles, who are sometimes referred to as Greeks in the New Testament. The apostolic mission to the Gentiles is reinforced by another detail, that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, which in the story functions as a passageway from Judea to the non-Jewish world. The response of this first pair to Jesus' call is perfect. When he says, follow me, it says that they immediately left their nets and followed him. The second calling of a pair of disciples, two other brothers as they are described, differs from the first in a couple of significant ways. Unlike the Jewish-Greek brotherhood of Simon, Peter, and Andrew, 
James and John are with their father in the boat and are mending their nets. Why are they mending their nets? Were their nets overtaxed with such a large haul of fish that they needed repairs? Is it just routine maintenance? We don't know because the author doesn't say. But consider this, given the limited space in the telling of this story, that the author chooses to tell us that Zebedee and his sons were specifically not doing the thing that a fisherman does, not casting their nets into the sea, but rather mending them, is significant. The two brothers are said to be with their father, Zebedee. Who is Zebedee? We don't have any other reference for him in the New Testament, but in the book of Joshua, we hear mention of someone with that name. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebedee, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. That's Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Here it is Achan, called a son of Zebedee, someone of the tribe of Judah that contravenes the command of God by acting in his own self-interest, by keeping part of the spoils at Jericho. We should note that Zerah means seed in Hebrew, so calling him the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah makes him function as a stand-in for the Judahites at large. Additionally, the way English translations render this name in Joshua differs from the way it is rendered in the New Testament, and that gives the impression that we are dealing with separate individuals. But textually speaking, since the original Hebrew contained no vowels, and the Greek is often a transliteration of the Hebrew, there isn't a need to make any distinction between Zebedee in Joshua and Zebedee in Matthew. Often, while attempting to historicize the biblical text, English translations will ignore the functionality of names and, as in the case here, obfuscate an important connection between texts. In Matthew, it is primarily James who is identified as the son of Zebedee, along with John, who is called his brother. Surely the text here is not so interested in letting us know who is who and how this one and that one happen to be related to each other. In Semitic languages, the expression son of means that a person is just like the one who preceded him, just like his father. They are, as we like to say in English, cut from the same cloth, like father, like son. The expression is commonplace in the Bible. For example, listen to Jesus' stern rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of the religious community in Jerusalem, in chapter 23 of the Gospel of Matthew. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. So here in chapter 4 of Matthew, James and John are with their father Zebedee in the boat when Jesus calls. As sons of their father, they are doing what he does, which is not the work of a fisherman. And yet when Jesus calls them to become fishers of men, it says that they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. 
Significantly, James bears the name, the same name as the one identified by Paul in Galatians as a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, along with Peter and John, two who also appear here in Matthew. We should note here that the connection between Jacob, Israel, and the Jerusalemite pillar is apparent in the Greek, Yaakovos, but is obscured by the English rendering of the name as James. So what does all of this mean? Here's what we have so far. In Joshua chapter 7, Achan, a Judahite, a son of Zebedee, stirs up God's anger against Israel by acting contrary to the command given by him. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus rebukes the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders in Jerusalem, the religious center of Judea, and calls them sons of their fathers. And in Galatians, Paul refers to James, Yaakovos, as a so-called pillar of Jerusalem and also associates him with the circumcision party, ones who stood in opposition to the true gospel by reducing circumcision to a matter of the flesh. In the call of the four disciples in Matthew 4, the author is presenting us with two different responses to that call. The first one, with Peter and Andrew, is more positive. The response is immediate and unequivocal. And the combination of Hebrew and Greek names looks ahead to the mission of the apostles to the Gentiles. The second one, with the two brothers, is more ominous. The reference to Zebedee anticipates literally the conflict related by Paul in Galatians, namely the betrayal of the gospel by one who bears the name of Jacob Israel and who is presumed to be a pillar of the religious center in Judea. Yet in both callings, the disciples ultimately leave everything, Peter and Andrew their nets, and James and John significantly the boat and their father, and follow Jesus. And so begins his public ministry, going all about Galilee, teaching, preaching, and healing, doing the work of God's Messiah, announcing the coming of his kingdom. These four men, along with others, will be entrusted by Jesus to do the same work. All of the texts here involve a recurring biblical teaching. God calls, human beings respond. Then we stray, and then God calls us back again and again and again, until the end when judgment comes and all are called to account. Truly, as it says in Ecclesiastes 1, there is nothing new under the sun. In order to properly hear the biblical story, to understand its meaning so that we can do what it teaches, we have to take into account the details. Rather than historicizing the narrative, we should try to learn and understand the functionality of words and names. We often think that reading the Bible as a historical record means we value it greatly and take it more seriously than just stories. Ironically, though, doing that forces the scriptural text into our understanding of history instead of letting us fully submit to the text. And unless we fully submit to it, we will never really hear what it says. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of A Light to the Nations, and I look forward to meeting again soon. Thank you for listening.